Good morning, Colorado. You're listening to The Daily Sunup. The Daily Sunup podcast is a conversation with the Colorado Sun. See our trust indicators at coloradosun.com slash ethics. It's Friday, January 26th. Today, it's time to talk music again with Sunwriter Kevin Simpson and G. Brown, director of the Colorado Music Experience. Before we begin, a special thank you to all our Colorado Sun members listening. It's thanks to you that The Sun continues to bring trustworthy, independent journalism to readers and listeners across our state. If you're not yet a member and want to join us, visit coloradosun.com join to sign up. While you're there, check out our member e-newsletters like Colorado Sunday, The Temperature, and more. Together, we'll keep Colorado informed in 2024. Now, let's go back in time with some Colorado history. Quote, Neither sheep owners nor stock raisers, of whom there are so many in Colorado, will ever be able to determine who was originally in the wrong. The feud sprang up, grew, and was nourished by excesses at the hands of both factions. The shepherds were anything but passive and peaceful, the cowherds were aggressive and sanguinary. Thus reported the New York Times on this day in 1875. In Colorado, the long-standing feud between sheep and cattle ranchers began in the mid-19th century, escalating into violence by the 1870s. Sheep rearing started with Hispano settlers in the San Luis Valley, while cattle herding emerged on the eastern plains after the 1850s gold rush. Conflicts arose over land use and environmental impacts, leading to violent incidents like the massacre of thousands of sheep and the murder of a county commissioner. This brutal rivalry persisted until the 1930s, when the Taylor Grazing Act introduced regulations for land management and environmental protection, reducing violence but shifting resentment towards federal land officials. Before we continue, did you know the Colorado Sun has a mobile app so you can read the news from anywhere, whether you're on the couch, taking the bus to work, or in the car on the way to the mountains? Visit coloradosun.com slash app to download today. Next, our feature story. But now they only block the sun. They rain and snow on everyone. So many things I would have done. But clouds got in my way. I've looked at clouds from both sides now. From up and down and still somehow. It's clouds. Welcome to another Friday, listeners, and we're on the cusp of another great Colorado weekend. And welcome to my friend, G. Brown, who oversees the Colorado Music Experience at colomusic.org, which is where you want to go to explore the state's rich music history with, got everything from artist profiles to recordings of live performances at local venues. Great stuff. How's it going, G.? Things are swell, Kevin, or or swollen. I can't tell the difference. <laughs> it's my telling our age, right? Okay. Uh, uh, so we're going to step into the Wayback Machine here and talk about some big names in music and their Colorado connections, uh, including the performer in that musical intro clip you just heard. But we're going to start with the Grateful Dead, a, a group so iconic that uh, they're apparently deserving of entire academic symposiums now. Uh, what's going on with the dead this spring, G? Well, I appreciate your asking about it, Kevin. This is something we're crafting at Fisk 
Planetarium up in Boulder uh, as part of CU Outreach's programs. They're sponsoring what we'll call a symposium. That sounds a little highfalutin, but uh, <laughs> I get together. We're going to drill down on the dead's uh, four appearances in Boulder back in the 20th century, and especially uh, the arc that started with their first show at the UMC Ballroom in 1969. We're going to recreate the old light shows that they did back wow. then. Uh, the guys involved are pretty uh, pretty excited. Uh, back then, they projected on the bed sheets behind the stage. They're going to get to produce the domed <laughs> planetarium now. So uh, that's fun. We're going to have Grateful Dead scholars on hand. David Gans, the famous dead historian, host of the Grateful Dead Hour on radio, the author of so many books. Uh, Michael Sobolski from the CU College of Music. It's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, we will tell you more next month, I promise. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think, are there any other rock pop groups that have, uh, you know, whose work has sort of risen to the level where academics actually take notice? Can you think of any? It's it's just a matter of degree, Kevin. There's, uh, there's courses on, uh, you know, I mean, Billy Joel taught his own course for a while back in the night <laughs> <laughs> about his... Uh, career arc. Uh, uh, it's just a matter of curriculums, but I would say that the dead for a bunch of uh, countercultural numbskulls, and I mean that in the most generous uh, <laughs> admiring way uh, to become the cultural institution they have and the subject, as you point out, of, uh, of literal academic research. It's not what anyone expected, including the band. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the, the important thing here is, will there be T-shirts and other merchandise available? Well, we're coming up with something. We've already got a pretty neat psychedelic poster. Mark Zaremba, one of uh, COME's trusted board members, is a student of poster art in general at that old work from Mouse and Kelly and uh, Rick Griffin, the guys who did those really amazing posters around the the family dog in the san francisco scene back in the late 60s and he's uh he's generated something that's gonna gouge your eyes out if not knock your socks off how's that for some metaphors there well we'll keep our listeners up to date on that as we get closer to the to the event but in, in honor of the dead g why don't you start us off with a clip here well let's play a little dark star just because that's uh the song we'll be focusing on, part of the Dead's canon for decades, uh, even early on when when we're focusing from 1969. Uh, I don't know if this is the version from the Live Dead album from that year or not, but uh, let's give it a rip. Here we go. So, gee, we remind folks every month about all the material you have archived at the Colorado Music Experience website. Uh, and as I mentioned before, profiles, audio of performances, and video, so much more. Um, now, I want to zero in on one particular story that I think longtime Coloradans may know about, but 
it's such a juicy slice of music history that I feel like we ought to talk about it just to keep the flame alive. And I'm talking about the king, Elvis Presley, who had, uh, shall we say, an interesting relationship with Colorado and uh, some Denver cops in particular. But uh, but first, tell us about his favorite sandwich. Oh, that's uh, that's my pleasure. Elvis's dietary means made all of his other pursuits seem rather tame in comparison. Uh, the king once flew from Memphis to Denver to fetch the sandwich, a concoction that was made by the now defunct Colorado Mine Company restaurant that was in right. Glendale. Uh, it was a house specialty that he had sampled once before or after a concert. Apparently, he couldn't find it anywhere else. The Fool's Gold Loaf. Um Really sumptuous, Kevin. Uh, <laughs> one loaf of sourdough bread smeared with butter, put in the oven about 350, and then one pound of bacon fried up crispy and then uh, sliced and the interior each half hollowed out. Put a jar of smooth peanut butter and a jar of blueberry preserves in there. Then put the bacon slices in and closing up the loaf. They charged back then. Uh, about $38 for that sandwich. Well, that's what, about $5,000 in today's money, right? <laughs> fool's gold. Uh, it wasn't called the gold sandwich. It was the fool's gold sandwich. <laughs> so anyway, that was Elvis's passion. Did, did you ever sample a fool's gold loaf? Actually, yes. Um, it's nice to be able to bring up a, a, a little sidebar here. Nick's Cafe was located right off of 6th Avenue in Golden. They just closed in recent years after the pandemic, uh, after many years. I think Nick was ready for retirement anyway, but Nick was the busboy who served Elvis at the Colorado Mine Company. Oh, my gosh. Restaurant, <laughs> Nick's Cafe, was uh, a greasy spoon in, again, the best sense of the phrase, right? Um, and decorated top to bottom in classic Elvis, every square inch festooned with photos and memorabilia. And he served the fool's gold sandwich. And if he liked you, he'd even serve it on the same metal dish that Elvis ate off. Oh, holy cow. Yeah. So uh, I'm a lucky boy to have experienced that. But uh, uh, I miss Nick's Cafe. Well, do you want to give us a review on the sandwich? Did it go down okay? Were you able to finish it? (laughs) Not as heinous as it sounds, but it's not my (laughs) proverbial cup of tea. (laughs) Anyway, I... uh, I'd much rather have, uh, I mean, Nick had much better fare on the menu. Greek food was his specialty. And, uh, uh, that's where I live. All right. Well, that's a nice uh, quirky little Elvis tidbit that something else brought him back to Colorado. And true to form, it sort of underscored his larger-than-life personality, uh, not to mention uh, what I alluded to earlier, a rather cozy relationship with Denver's finest. This story has achieved almost mythic proportions, but it has the advantage of being 100% true. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that is for sure. Been verified on so many levels. Uh, we're going back to December of 75, January of 76. Elvis decided to leave Graceland, uh, his mansion in Memphis for the holidays and to celebrate his 41st birthday, which was January 8th, 76. 
he took his girlfriend, uh, Linda, Linda Thompson at the time, and several of his entourage to Vail to celebrate. Flew in on his jet and uh, rented a Trailways bus, and they used the ski slopes at night. Some noisy snowmobiles at 3 a.m. rides through the wood and stuff. But shortly after this revelry, he went on the legendary carbine binge. He uh, visited Kumpf Motors, which was a luxury automobile showroom in Denver. He arrived about three hours after closing time with this party, and he told three of the people in his group, and they were uh, two policemen from uh, the force, Dr. Jerry Ke- or um, Captain Jerry Kennedy and Detective Ron Pietrofesso, who had been uh, his police guard during concerts when Elvis had been here earlier, and then a police physician, Dr. Gerald Starkey, who had treated Elvis a day earlier for a, a scratch. <laughs> but he told him to pick out the cars they wanted. Jerry told me that uh, he had asked him what he was driving. He said an Audi, an economy car, and he said, I'm going to give you a car like mine. So <laughs> Elvis purchased a, a Lincoln Mark IV for Kennedy and Cadillacs for Pietrofesso and Starkey, $13,000 cars at the time, his way of saying thank you. And uh, that's the legend, right? Uh, <laughs> it actually happened. An interesting sort of sidelight to that, uh, when this information surfaced, there was even a a local newscaster who sort of jokingly dropped a comment that Elvis got wind of, right? Don Kinney was a local anchorman on the TV news and uh, on his broadcast, getting the news the day after that car purchasing spree, he just quipped that uh, he wouldn't mind getting a car too. (laughs) Elvis had a new Cadillac delivered to the station the following (laughs) morning that went home to Graceland. He was... uh, Generous to a fault and a little bit crazy, too. <laughs> yeah. An interesting uh, a sidebar, uh, Don Kenny kept the Cadillac safe in his garage most of the time, but occasionally he drove it to uh, his family's farm up in Montana. And on one such occasion, uh, it was August 16th, 77, and the car broke down. And it was later that same day that he learned that Elvis uh, had passed away at age 42. So, oh, so I- those were the days. But what Elvis clip should we play in honor of, uh, of this little story about him? Well, let's see. I can't think of a, a food song, but uh, how about just one of my uh, old faves? I don't think it gets played enough. Marie's the name of his latest flight. All right. That sounds great. Here we go. A very old friend came by today Cause he was telling everyone in town Marie's the name of his latest flame He talked and talked and I heard him say That she had the longest, blackest hair The prettiest green eyes anywhere And Marie's the name of his latest flame So, gee, there are obviously some big-name musicians who've come out of Colorado and particularly Denver's East High School. Uh, I'm thinking Philip Bailey from Earth, Wind, and Fire, of course, as well as uh, Kenny Passarelli, who I know we've talked about on this podcast before. We played with so many top acts. But I had just about forgotten another folk icon and so much more, really, who went to East. And I'm talking about Judy Collins, who was as prolific as she was multi-talented. 
there's a great piece on the uh, Colorado Music Experience website and an even fuller uh, video. It's uh, well worth your seven and a half minutes to watch this. Uh, this is full of revelations about Judy Collins that I'm guessing even fans of her most popular recordings might not know. What can you tell us about Judy and, and, and her history with Denver? Well, she always claimed Colorado was her home state. Uh, 1949, her family moved from Seattle to Denver. Uh, she was 10 years old, and she discovered folk music a few years later, and that was the path that brought her international fame. Um, she began studying classical piano with Dr. Antonia Brico, who's another name worth investigating, a fantastic female conductor, maybe the only female conductor of her era. And uh, Judy's father was a singer and composer and a broadcasting personality in Denver during the golden days of radio. He had a program on KOA radio, and she appeared as a youngster. Chuck Collins Calling was the name of the show. And then she debuted with the Denver Businessman's Orchestra when she was just a teenager. So by the time she got to East High, she traded in her guitar, or I'm sorry, traded in her classical piano training for a secondhand guitar that her father had given her. And by the time she was of college age, she started hanging out at Michael's Pub in Boulder, where all the college students went to eat pizza and drink that 3-2 beer. And uh, she kind of launched her her career there, then started performing at the Satire Lounge and the Green Spider, all the various mountain bistros like the Gilded Garter up in Central City and the Limelight in Aspen. In Denver, the place to play was the Exodus. Uh, that was the focal point for all the college kids, all the trendies who were there for art shows and poetry readings and folk sessions. Judy was an opening act and subsequently moved to New York's Greenwich Village, where the rest is history, propelled her to stardom. Still one of the great voices in popular music history, just the, in terms of purity and range, there was no denying her. And she's, uh, last I looked, she was, as recently as a couple of years ago, was still performing. Oh, yeah. Um, haven't heard otherwise. She's a worker bee, for sure. And she also, an interesting thing about her history uh, that I love, is she had sort of an unexpected performance in a courtroom, didn't she? Yeah, this is just uh, one of those little trivia bits that we pride ourselves on at uh, Colorado Music Experience. January back in 1970, she was called to testify at the Chicago 7th conspiracy trial. And she answered a question by singing Keith Seeger's Where Have All the Flowers Gone? That song about peace. And she only got the first line out before the judge forbade her to sing in his courtroom. And Jules Pfeiffer, the legendary cartoonist, right, right, covering the trial, and he recreated the atmosphere. He sketched uh, the marshal gently closing Judy's mouth. <laughs> and we've got that sketch on our site, or at least on social media this month. So I hope people will investigate. Wow. That's, yeah, it's a great story. And it actually reminded me um, of another time a music superstar testified and actually sang in a Denver courtroom. Uh, do you remember the Michael Jackson copyright infringement trial? Oh, yeah. Now, what was her name? Crystal somebody. Uh, Crystal. Oh, yeah. Uh, it escapes me. But uh, claimed that uh, Michael had uh, stolen some of her work. And, uh, 
uh, was not ruled in her favor. But yeah, that was at the the apex of Michael Jackson mania. So for him to show up in Denver, not for a concert, but to sit in a Denver courtroom was the pretty weird bit of Colorado music history. Yeah, I, I was. I happened to be there actually when Jackson testified. Uh, he did an acapella version of, of Billie Jean, which was the song in question, and explained how he conceived it. And I got to say, it, it was just riveting. I, I never saw Michael Jackson perform in a concert setting, but even in a courtroom, which was, as you can imagine, packed, it was uh, it was amazing. But that's a story for another day. Getting back to Judy Collins, uh, she's got an incredible array of songs to choose from. Gee, what do you think we should play? <laughs> well, I'm going to be a little selfish here. I, I do a make good. One of Judy's greatest songs, her version of Stephen Sondheim's Send in the Clowns, was ruined for my wife uh, when we saw Krusty the Clown uh, sing it on The Simpsons as part of the comeback special. Send in the clowns. <laughs> and can't hear it any other way. Uh, I apologize for that. Let's play Judy's version and, uh, and Again, try to make good here a little bit. Isn't it bliss? Don't you approve? One who keeps tearing around, one who can't move. Where are the clouds? There are two. Oh, that's great stuff. That is great stuff. Oh, beautiful. But, you know, just a few weeks ago uh, marked the 16th anniversary of singer-songwriter Dan Fogelberg's death. Um, I can't believe it's been that long, but I, I saw an obituary from 2007 uh, that quoted you, G, not as a music writer, but as a friend. I know he was a favorite of mine back in the day. I remember seeing him at Red Rocks. And I still keep them in my regular music rotation. But tell me about uh, your relationship with Dan. Do you know him pretty well? Oh, I, you know, it was nice that they categorized me as a friend in the obituary. But we just, I had the opportunity to interview him many times over the arc of his career, uh, pretty much from day one when he showed up at Ebbets Field back in the mid-70s with his band Fool's Gold. That was the real starting point of his relationship with Colorado. His road manager at the time, a gentleman named Patrick Coley, had mentioned that Chris Hillman had his house for sale up outside of Nederland. Dan went and looked at it and fell in love with the mountains and bought it on impulse. Uh, when the tour was over, he moved to Nederland, 9,000 feet up in the Rocky Mountains. Uh, they called the road to it the Ho Chi Minh Trail because it was unpassable. <laughs> Uh, the winner, but it really inspired uh, Dan. Go back to his Netherlands album, him singing about living on the edge and emerging from his Colorado hideaway. It was uh, his signature sound. And that's where it developed. And then he continued to be a Colorado resident. In 1980, he found and bought some land outside of Pagosa Springs on the western slope and built a house and barns and eventually a studio and lived a quiet life in the San Juan Mountains. He loved it because he could ski during the day and work at night. 
yeah, I was honored to chronicle that whole career arc. And you can find all that information on on our site in his profile. And we got a video and on record books. I could go on and on, but there you go. Great. Well, yeah, it's gone, gone too soon, in my opinion. Uh, oh, no doubt. So how about playing this into the weekend with your favorite Dan Fogelberg turn, d- tune? Do you have a favorite or... Yeah, this one just always resonated. Jimmy Buffett uh, covered it to uh, great acclaim a few years later, but there's a place in the world for a gambler. Sounds good. So we will play ourselves into the weekend with this clip from Dan Fogelberg. Thanks for joining us, Gene, and we'll see you next month. Thanks, Kevin. You can read more at coloradosun.com. Finally, here are a few stories that you should know about today. Advocates for the Poudre River are asking a federal judge to throw out a key permit for a long-delayed $2 billion northern water plan for two reservoirs and extensive water pipelines. The nonprofit Save the Poudre alleges the Army Corps of Engineers' approval of the Northern Integrated Supply Project violates federal protections for water and the environment. Northern Water is working on the plan for 15 sites and water providers to secure more drinking water supplies for fast-growing northern areas of Colorado. It had hoped to begin construction by late 2024. The city of Aspen implemented a new ordinance in December that asks residents and businesses to turn off indoor and outdoor lights if light from their buildings shines a certain point beyond their property line. If they do not, they could face a fine for what the city calls light trespass. The new outdoor lighting code requires lights out at homes and businesses from 10 p.m. to 7 a.m. or an hour past closing or before opening for businesses that stay open later. People who break the new ordinance could be summoned to court. The U.S. Board of Geographic Names on Thursday released several proposed names for what's currently known as Kit Carson Mountain, a more than 14,000-foot peak in the Sangre de Cristo range. The board said it received requests to rename the mountain Lawrence Peak or Tabawash Ute Peak. The town of Crestone Board of Trustees asked the board to consider Mount Crestone. Kit Carson was a frontier trapper whose violence against native people led to a push to strip his name from the mountain. For more information on all of these stories, visit our website, coloradosun.com. And don't forget to tune in again next time. Now a quick message from our team. This is Michael Booth. And this is John Ingold. We cover health and climate here at the Colorado Sun. Every week, John and I work together to send out a newsletter to our premium members called The Temperature. In this newsletter, we share our latest reporting about health and climate and how they intersect issues like forever chemicals, healthcare's rising costs, and the lingering effects of the pandemic. The Temperature is one of our weekly newsletters available to members at the premium level. To sign up, head to coloradosun.com slash join. Not only will you be able to sign up for the temperature and our other premium newsletters, but you'll be supporting the Colorado Sun as a member, and thanks for doing that.